Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. Our host for today's episode is Joseph Boot. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, a faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute and also to be found on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm Ryan Aris, and in studio today is Joe Boot and remotely we've got John Cooper. Regular listeners uh, will remember that uh, John has been uh, on the show a couple of times before he is the bassist and founder and lead singer of the rock band Skillet. And I'm actually going to turn it over to John for this episode. And John and Joe are going to have a conversation on, uh, on pacifism, pietism, about the words and example of Jesus, about persecution and the state, the Christian's relationship to the state and the rest of the world, how we raise our children. It's going to be a really full and uh, valuable episode. So without wanting to hype this up any more than it needs to, I'm going to turn it over to John and enjoy this interview. What's up, everybody? We got a special, sick, awesome episode today. It's kind of a mashup with our great friend, Dr. Joseph Boot. Say hello, Mr. Boot. Hey, John. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on the show again. Oh, man, I'm so thrilled. You know, I got something I got to talk to you about. All right, I texted you. I said, hey, is there any way you can come on the show so I can grill you? I got to drill down on this stuff. I'm so thrilled that you guys said, yeah, we'll do it. So this is going to be a mashup. I thought we would call this boot stuff if you want to. <laughs> Good theme song. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, thanks for joining me. Let's jump straight into this. I got a ton of questions. Here's how it started. All right, within Christianity right now, there's this um, section of Christianity that's saying, all right, what we need to do in the earth right now, there's all this chaos and stuff, you know, whether you're talking about COVID, uh, racial equity, climate justice, all the words justice, there's a section of Christianity that's saying, hey, we need to join together with all these, you know, worldly things, right? I call that the Christian left. Woke Christianity, progressive Christianity, yep. whatever this. They're basically like, let's be socialists for Jesus. We're taking them off. We're not talking about them today. They're not in the question. But there's two different kinds of categories of Christians that I consider to be people who love God. They love the word of God, orthodox, serious about the Bible. And they very much disagree with people like you, Boot, and people like me. And they would say things like this. They would say, Joe, you know, when you say that, it's not right for the government to force people to take the jab, for instance, all right, like mandates and stuff like that. Joseph Boot, you come on and say, that's not right for the government to do that. They would say to you, actually, Joe, you're the one that's not being very Christian. 
You're not being very Christ-like. You're not supposed to be going against the government. You're supposed to be honoring the king, turn the other cheek, honoring the emperor, whatever you want to call it. There's a lot of Christians like this right now. They love God and I respect them. I think they mean really well. But I need you to come into my show so I can dig down into this with you. And if, I'd like to just ask you a ton of questions, but I think we need to start with some definitions. Because in my mind, I think this is to do with a couple of things like Christian pietism, uh, Christian pacifism. So A, do you agree with those labels? And then B, if you do, can you give us a brief definition of what those words mm -hmm. mean so we can get started? Well, it's a, it's a, con it's a complicated landscape uh, that you're describing. And um, you're right that there is the, these sort of two very different uh, types of group, as you said, you, on the one hand, you've dismissed one group, the the sort of the, the woke crowd that um, frankly don't really take scripture seriously. And um, from our from our perspective, uh, we shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be too concerned to uh, get tied up with those kind of things when people aren't actually on the same page about the about the word of God and and uh, the inspiration and authority of scripture, at least I mean, from an apologetics point of view, we can, of course, but from a, you know, what is the Christian perspective standpoint, uh, there are genuine believers uh, who have had a very different take on on the last few years and about the role of government and about the role of uh, Christians within society. And th the, the question of what our relationship to the state is, um, what the state's responsibilities are, what they aren't, and then what degree of resistance Christians are allowed to um, exercise in any number of different situations from uh, mandates about vaccines or the locking down of the church right through to self-defense. I mean, obviously, and I'm sure that it's been something that you're asked about frequently, the issue of gun control uh, and uh, uh, how do we handle what takes the, the 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 fallout of mass shootings and these sort of things? And so you 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 do have Christians who are wrestling with these issues in a way that perhaps they haven't been forced to wrestle with them before. And I think that is part of the problem, John, is that the last couple of years, especially, have raised issues for Christian people, well-meaning, Bible-believing Christians, that uh, they just simply weren't on the test. Uh, they haven't revised for. Um, and uh, they're, they're not, they're in a situation where having not revised for the test about the, the relationship of church and state or Christianity and culture, they're all at sea then in, in moments of crisis or collision between church and culture or church and state um, uh, that, that mean that they are, they're, they're floundering when it comes to these issues. So you've used a couple of terms and definitions are important. Pietism would be the first one. Let's just talk about that really briefly. Sometimes when people hear that word and they, and and somebody like me questions uh, pietism or or challenges it, people think, "Well, how can any Christian be against piety? Uh, how can any Christian be opposed to um, you know pr your pr uh, one's uh, devoted prayer life, uh, the faithful reading of Scripture, uh, seeking to live a holy life?" Well, of course, every Christian must believe that those things are important. Uh, piety and pietism are, are two different things. It's important for every Christian to, in a certain sense, uh, be pious. By that, I mean to be concerned with their walk with the Lord. That, that's important. Pietism 
is when we actually uh, begin to see the only thing that's important as our personal spiritual exercises, that um, it would be uh, perhaps wrong for Christians to be concerned with politics or to be engaged with the state in a serious way. Some would go as far as to say uh, that Christians shouldn't be in the police force or in the army or, or, or be a magistrate or be in, involved in any function within the state. That would be on the, on the more extreme end. Um, but there's been whole movements that have believed that who are in this uh, pietistic uh, sort of general theological framework. You do have a kind of a, a, a traditional kind of European German pietism, um, which has been which which has been, certainly been part of that, uh, especially in Europe. Um, and um, but not everybody who is who, who is a, considered a pietist would reject engagement with the state. Generally, what we mean by it in more popular terms is somebody who uh, believes that the Christian life really uh, terminates with your prayer, Bible reading, trying to be personally um, holy in your relationships with other people, and your and your and your life inside of the church, inside of the institution of the church, and that is the Christian life. If it, when we talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is the church, the ecclesia for these people. And therefore, um, what's important is that you are trying to lead some people to Jesus. You are praying, reading your Bible, and trying to lead a personally holy life. But the issues of law and education and politics and the arts and culture and all these things, these are really um, secular things, or they are um, certainly less important. They're not, they're not significant things that the Christian should be um, concerned with there's the, there's a in, we might say there's a two story view of the world in Pietism. Think about the um, the double decker bus uh, in England, you know the London Red Bus, and on the lower story of the bus, sorry the upper story of the bus, you've got prayer, Bible reading, the church, personal holiness, all of these kinds of issues. On the lower deck, you've got um, the issues of law, culture, education, politics, the arts, the sciences. And the really important stuff is on the top deck. That's what Christianity is concerned with. The lower deck is the kind of neutral, general, secular area of life. And we're not to be really concerned with that. That's not the Christian's concern. The problem is, of course, is that where's the driver? The driver is always on the lower deck. And so... Uh, it, the, the bus ends up going wherever the, 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 the secular mindset, the secular world wants it to go. So generally speaking, that would be pietism. Um, and I've run a few things together there, but I'm just trying to distinguish piety from pietism. And then pacifism, um, that's a very interesting one too. I do think the two are related, though not always in people's thinking. Um, but you have had some, some very well-known pietistic pacifists um, uh, like John Howard Yoder and, and those within that tradition, you know, the politics of Jesus. And again, this is all about total submission to the state, um, uh, non-resistance, uh, non-resistance to violence, and basically the view that um, violence, including war, is basically unjustifiable under any circumstances, and that essentially resistance is not acceptable. Uh, so there is a kind of, there is, it's interesting that you put it in those terms because there is a sort of pacifistic hue uh, to what we've been experiencing the last couple of years with many Christians as well. Uh, so 
I've never heard of that person uh, that you just said, but you just kind of hit the nail on the head of what I'm getting at, which is this pietistic pacifism. All right. You know, you see this, uh, I've seen this with a lot of theologians, scholars, the gospel coalition, um, or as I call them, the socialist gospel coalition at this point, I kind of view them as almost like Christian leftists at this point, usually, but when they're attacking people like me, it'll be in terms of like this idea of, uh, you should never resist the state should never resist. Mm -hmm. If the state comes in and says, you're going to take the jab, you don't resist. If BLM's going to have a protest on your street and they want to burn down your house, uh, you don't resist them because Jesus didn't resist. That's the strain specifically I want to talk to you about. Mm -hmm. I also see this a lot in the, um, in the UK theologians. Yes. You know, it seems like most all of the UK influence, yeah, because I read all their stuff, the feeling is that they're viewing people like me and you, um, almost like almost like we've deconstructed Christianity in their view, almost like the Reformation happened, and, and we kind of deconstructed the real gospel, and then and then they added all this other stuff like self defense mm. and freedom of speech and et cetera, et cetera, and so now we think that's what Christianity is. But really, that was a kind of a false reconstruction from the reformers. And so I want to ask you specifically about that and some specific scriptures. But do you have anything to say about that? Well, first of all, the notion that um, uh, questions of um, resistance were uh, really concerns of the Reformation and, and that we've somehow reconstructed our own Christianity, deconstructed the old one and reconstructed a new one is complete nonsense. Uh, Augustine, um, the great uh, North African church father, uh, spoke very specifically about just war. Um, and uh, the, the whole of the experience of the early church in the first few centuries was one of resistance. Um, and, uh, sometimes that resistance meant, uh, that eventually they would end up in the, it wasn't, it wasn't a story of submission to the dictates of the state or the regulation of the state. In fact, it was because they refused state regulation because they refused to say Caesar is Lord, put their incense on the altars of Caesar and get their license to be regulated by the state that they were persecuted and that it sometimes meant that they were thrown to the lions and uh, were were martyred. Um, and so uh, even um, the instructions of Jesus uh, with respect to the, the, the early church was uh, when the tribulation was to come, when uh, the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem, his instructions were clear to actually flee. Don't, don't, don't stay and uh, uh, burn with the city, um, but get out of there um, and pray that your flight is not in winter. Um, and I will pick up a few very specific texts with you in a minute uh, that make it very clear that the Bible does not teach passive uh, submission or pacifistic submission um, to tyranny uh, or to the state. So it was very much um, the early church's stance that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he must be honored first and foremost, and that when, this, when the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then disobedience becomes a Christian duty. And Romans 13, which is one of the passages that's been cited so many times over the last couple of years in defense of this sort of passive acquiescence to the state, 
Paul makes very, very clear that the state is to be God's servant. It's God's deacon. Um, uh, that passage is actually about the sovereignty of God over every area of life, um, uh, including the, the state. Uh, the state itself must serve God, and it's in its service to God, it is to punish evil and re- reward righteousness. When it starts to reward righteousness, uh, when it starts to punish righteousness and reward evil, then we have a, a duty, just as the early church uh, uh, did. For example, we have a, a duty to resist. Um, the um, One of the things that the early church did actually was resisted um, the, the Roman uh, view, the Greco-Roman view that um, abortion and infanticide were acceptable, and, and the, the Greek philosophers held that they could even be mandated by the state, that the, the state could mandate abortions. And the early church went around collecting up the um, abandoned children uh, and abandoned babies and uh, teaching them to be Christians um, and raising them in Christian homes. And um, the early church, of course, took God's law seriously, and that meant also there was a right of self-defense. Um, and we'll come to that. Uh, we'll come to some specific texts about that in a moment. But no, the notion that the Reformation kind sort of reinvented a new uh, Christianity that involved freedom of speech and so on. No, Paul, when you look at the book of Acts, their insistence is they refused to not speak. When they were told not to speak, when the Sanhedrin commanded Peter not to speak in the name of Jesus, he flat out refused and said, uh, should I obey God or men? So the question is always, um, obedience to God or man. Now, obedience to God in some instances means submission to your local church elders, sub- mutual submission in marriage and recognition of headship within marriage, submission of children to their parents, and submission of um, uh, uh, people to duly established authority, which is what Romans 13 is about. So, of course, obedience to God at times means when uh we are not being required to disobey God or, or when we're being asked to ignore God's, uh, uh, when, we're, when we're not being required to disobey God's law, then we can render due submission to properly constituted authority in the church and in the family and in the state. But where we are, where, where the church, for example, is commanded not to baptize, not to administer the sacraments, not to lay hands on the sick, not to preach the gospel in person, not to administer, not to administer church discipline, then the church has a duty to assert the lordship of Jesus Christ. In the same way that you wouldn't ask an, a, a, a wife with an abusive husband who's beating her to, to submit to your husband because the Bible says so, uh, or children who are being asked by their parents to go out and, and steal for the family. Um, both children and wife in those circumstances would be absolutely right to disobey and to resist. Um, and it's the same with our relationship to the state. So, all right. So, Plain devil's advocate. What if I said, okay, right, Joe, but you're adding a whole bunch of other things into what it means to disobey God. Um, in other words, like like my pacifist friends uh, might say, okay, John, of course, yes, I have to preach the gospel, of course. Um, I can't, you know, give the pinch of incense to Caesar, so to speak. I can't say, you know, Caesar is Lord. I understand they can't force me to steal or to kill something like that. But all this other stuff, you're sort of adding all this other stuff, you know, into the gospel. Like, in other words, Joe saying, you can't force me to get the jab or force me to send my kids to a public school, right? Like, that's the thing that's on the table right now. 
who's going to who's responsible, the teachers unions or is it parents? So my pacifist friends think that John Cooper and Joe Boot, you're just being too like crazy. You're being radical by saying, no, the state doesn't have a right to you know, teach my kids A, B or C. They say you're being crazy. You're adding all this stuff into the gospel. And then you're saying, you know, this is what God oh. demands to do. Do you know what I mean? What do you have to say about that? Yeah, well, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, a couple of, illust- uh, you know, an illustration and then, then the general principle involved. Um, first of all, let's take the, let's take the jab. Let's take, um, let, let's describe it for what it is. This is, um, in these terms, is a mandatory experimental medical treatment. The mandating of an experimental medical treatment to a human being who doesn't want it. Uh, now, that is a, a violation of the most basic and foundational right the Bible gives to us as image bearers of God, which is our, um, our bodily autonomy, right? The ability to say, yes, I will participate in that. No, I won't participate in that. Yes, I will receive into my body uh, that chemical. No, I won't receive into my body that chemical. Now, some might say, well, we, what, what about abortion? Well, abortion, there's two bodies involved. That's the difference when it comes to the issue of, uh, of uh, when we talk about bodily autonomy and, and the idea of being an individual self, there's two people involved. That's what the dispute is about. It's not just the woman's right to choose because there are now two people involved. Um, and the same principle actually of you know speaking up for those who don't have a voice concerning their, uh, their image bearing status. Now, as an image bearer of God, if I don't have essential and basic control over my own body, I have lost the most fundamental and basic uh, element of what it means to be a human being. Um, I, can, I can no longer control or govern the most basic things about my life. If the state can come along and say, You're, you can't eat that, you can't drink that, you will take this, you won't take that, then the most fundamental and basic realities of what it means to be a human made in God's image to enjoy uh, an autonomy over myself as a responsible being to God. Uh, and we can talk about in a moment sphere sovereignty where I lose that. The only times and when that autonomy is lost is when I'm actually committing crimes and the state has an obligation to protect the autonomy of other individuals and other people from me seeking to infringe upon theirs. So in, in the, the, I would say that the, the blindness of people on this issue of mandatory medical treatments is astonishing. If I lose my own basic and essential bodily autonomy as God's image bearers, responsible to God for my own body, and in fact, actually, the Bible goes further and says, my body belongs not just to me, it belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not your own, you're bought with a price, so honor God in your body. So if I believe that a particular medical treatment is not going to be beneficial for me, but damaging for me or dangerous to me, then I have a basic obligation and responsibility to maintain uh, my bodily autonomy and seek to obey God in my body. So so any notion that you could be forced by the state to take a state-mandated treatment um, on pain of being cut off from, from, uh, from life um, is uh, is a denial, really, of our image-bearing status. Uh, even if even if the justification is well, it will be a benefit to others, uh, or, or or you know other other people will be um, benefited by your decision, which has been part of the argument. You know, it's love of neighbor to take this injection. 
even if even if you said, well, there are the the, the you know the results of these jabs are kind of neutral, um, it is still an, fundamentally an issue of my rights as an image bearer of God to exercise autonomy over my own body. That basic issue of self control, if I have, which which is a command of Scripture to control ourselves, to be self controlled. If I cannot control self, and I don't have a basic governance over my own body, then I have no fundamental rights that would protect me from any intrusion of the state. So that's the first thing. Okay. Can I ask you a question uh, here on that, Joe, on that? Uh, but what if I said, yeah, but you only think that because of John Locke, because I've heard this from two different UK theologians. They say Americans are impacted by John Locke, and they think that, you know, we Americans think it's Christianity, but really that's just natural rights. So, so in a way, we've kind of like, bastardized the gospel by bringing natural right philosophies. The early church didn't do that. That was after the Reformation. And now Americans have put all that stuff in there. But in the early church, they were like, hey, it's okay if you take my stuff. It's not about me. The gospel is about other people. What do you say about that? Well, I would say it's utopian, fanciful drivel, and it's not accurate. Um, uh, you know, John Locke, um, John Locke um, did not invent um, the notion that human beings are made in God's image and uh, that their lives are to be protected and that we have a basic responsibility before God um, and a fundamental control over our own bodies, which, of course, touches on the pacifism issue because it involves a right to self-defense. And if I've got a right to self-defense, I've got a right to defend myself against the state injecting me with something that I don't want. Um, so no, John, why do we have a right to defend ourselves, uh, um, uh, biblically speaking? Well, first of all, the, um, again, because we, we are image bearers of God, God protects human life. Uh, we know that God protects life even in the womb. Uh, biblical law talks about even when there's an accident, when men are struggling together, uh, or fighting together and hit a woman and the, and the child comes out. If, if, the, if the child dies, if there's harm, then you shall pay life for life. Um, God mandates, actually, that if, if a man sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed. Now, that, of course, is part of the role of the state uh, to, to exact vengeance. That's not put in, our, in, our, uh, in a judicial sense. That's not part of our purview. But if you go, for example, to you can go to Exodus uh, chapter 22, verses um, 2 through 7 there, and... Um, uh, even in the case of an intruder coming into your home, and I'm sure the Americans will like this, um, an intruder comes into your home in the nighttime is, as an act of self-defense, you have the right to take their life. Now, if the sun's come up and you can see what's going on and uh, it, the, the whole situation is, is different because now it's not under cover of darkness, they might not be intruding, they might in fact just be coming for a visit, and uh, etc., then there's blood guiltiness if you take their life. Um, and so... Uh, scripture makes very plain that uh, we have a right to defend ourselves. And that includes a right actually to defend ourselves from a tyrannical state that's trying to stick things into your body that you don't want. Uh, now, this is, in, this, in that sense, this is not really a debate about the whys and wherefores, the pros and cons about these particular injections. It's just a question of what does it mean to be human, to be an image bearer of God, and what does it mean to possess your own self, uh, to, to, to be 
if you can't be Lord of your own body, how can you possibly be Lord in the, in the family, in the church, or any other area of life? So this is a basic obligation that God has given to us to exercise self-control. And um, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Scripture makes that clear. Um, and we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. So we belong to God, and we have an obligation to honor the Lord in our body. So anything that might be dishonoring to the Lord or be destructive of the body, including somebody trying to kill me, I have a right, I need to honor the Lord and defend myself. And scripture explicitly gives me um, that right of self-defense. I can ask now, you another question. Go ahead. But yeah. what about uh, people like Tim Keller? Like one of the things he says a lot is like the way that God works. He always says the way God works is up is down. The way to rule is to serve. Like, you know, he says things like this quite a lot. So Jesus came to sort of, uh, you know, show us the way. And the things that you're talking about are Old Testament things. Jesus comes and says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want to show you the things, that, cool. uh, the way that things really should be done. All right. He allows himself to be arrested. Uh, you know, Peter cuts the the ear off of the guard and Jesus says, no, we're not here to do that. We're here to pray for enemies and, you know, to love your neighbor as yourself. And eventually I want to ask you about this other passage of scripture. I can't remember exactly which one it is in the New Testament. But, you know, when one of the apostles is saying, you know, good things about, the, the, about believers, he's commending them because they allowed people to steal their stuff. You know, they didn't fight back and they didn't take retribution. They didn't make a big stink about it. Mm -hmm. Their stuff was stolen and, and yada, yada. So what if I said to you, yeah, Joe, but you're talking about Old Testament stuff. Jesus came to show us, hey, the way up is down. The way to rule is to serve. And now we don't de defend ourselves anymore and, and, and et cetera. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, it would be important to say that um, the word of God is the first the creation word of God that holds all things together. It's the incarnate word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's the inscripturated word of God. That those are the, the those the, and these are interconnected. They're involved in one another. They're inseparable from one another. And Jesus Christ, as the living word of God, as the and as the eternal Son, is the author of all of Scripture. Ultimately, all Scripture is God breathed and uh, profitable for training and instruction in, in righteousness. So um, we can't have any of this uh, red letter uh, Bible nonsense. First of all, Jesus um, uh, said some of the toughest things and most important things anywhere in the Bible um, that would militate against this perspective. And second of all, it's all the word of God. So we cannot, um, the, the Bible of the early church, let's be reminded, was the Older Testament. The Newer Testament in the first century there, um, certainly the, no, nobody was picking up in the first few centuries the, uh, the, uh, a print copy of the Bible as you see it here. And let, let's just turn to such and such a passage uh, in the book of Revelation. There, there were the Gospels and uh, letters of Paul um, in, and some of the other letters in circulation, of course, during, that, during the first century. But when people uh, re referred to the Scriptures... Uh, it's interesting that Peter actually does re refer to Paul's writing as scripture. Um, but the Bible of the early church, if you want to call it that, was the Older Testament. That's what they were reading from. Yes, they might get a letter from Paul to read out as well uh, that's in circulation around the churches and, and uh, also in the first century begin to get the, the Gospels. 
um, but their their scriptures were the whole the were the was the totality of what we today call you know the, the Jewish canon the Hebrew Bible right so all of it is the word of God and it's inseparable so we cannot have this sort of Marcionite and that's a heresy by the way uh, Marcion who tried to say well the God of the Old Testament is kind of different from the God of the New Testament. And I don't like these passages in the New Testament either because they sound a bit Old Testament-ish as well. So we'll dispense with those two and and we, we will have the following segments of the Newer Testament. And that's the different kind of God, a God of light and God of love. But this Old Testament God, he's a God of judgment and wrath and justice. So we must reject any of that separation of God's revelation into higher and lower, more important, less important. We have to accept the word of God in its totality. Secondly, Jesus accepted the teaching, the full teaching of the word of God, the law of God, uh, as authoritative. Uh, And this is fundamental. Um, Remember that Jesus resisted the temptations of Satan um, by citing passages of Deuteronomy. And when he goes up onto the mountain after that wilderness experience as the greater Moses to interpret the law, he reminds us in Matthew 5 that not a single punctuation mark of his law word is going to pass till everything's been accomplished, till heaven and earth pass away, till basically the new creation is installed, his law word holds. He says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them, to bring them to completion, to put them into force. So he then goes on to expound the the fullness of the internal, not just the external, but the internal meaning of the law. So we might say that uh, one of the primary concerns with Moses is the external relationship of the law in social and civil affairs. Jesus doesn't reject any of that, but he goes on to talk about in the Great Sermon on the Mount uh, the full internal implications of the law as well. It's not just about you didn't kill your brother, therefore you're justified, but have you been angry with him? Yes, you've not run off and committed adultery, the external relationship, but but have you got? are you being governed by a lustful attitude? So Jesus, as the greater Moses, expounds the law, and he doesn't say, you've heard that Moses said, but I say to you, Moses was wrong, do this. He said, you have heard that it was said. In other words, he was refuting the false interpretations of the scribes and the Pharisees of his era, and he was giving the full meaning of the law. Um, what, but what's, uh, I think, um, vitally important in addition to that is that Jesus himself clearly is no pacifist. When have you heard of a pacifist making a whip and driving people out of uh, a place of worship or a place of commerce with it. You'll recall in John chapter 2, verse 15, that Jesus actually makes a, a whip, and he makes it out of rope and cords, basically, and he drives everyone, including animals and people, out of the, the temple court. Um, so Jesus himself doesn't act in a pacifistic way. You also mentioned, very interestingly, um, the 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 incident of Peter cutting off the servant's ear. And you rightly pointed out that Jesus in, uh, heals the, uh, the servant whose ear has been cut off. What we don't tend to ask is what was Peter doing with a sword in the first place? Well, did Jesus not know the disciples were armed? No, of course he did. That'd be like saying, well, you know, uh, if it had been today and, and the people had shotguns or rifles thrown over their shoulder. Of course, Jesus knew that the, uh, the, the, the apostles were armed. In fact, in the Bible, in Scripture specifically, um, 
we are told that um, the disciples are required in Luke 22, 35 through 38, to buy swords. They're actually told to buy swords by the Lord Jesus. Um, And that's because they needed to protect themselves from bandits and robbers in the way and so forth. The reason Jesus did not allow Peter to fight to prevent his arrest um, is the reason that Jesus gave to Pontius Pilate in his interview. Uh, when the Lord himself said, look, um, my kingdom is not from this world. Right? He's saying to Pontius Pilate, because he's asking him if he's a king. Um, are you still there, John? Yes, you are. Um, he's asking him if he's a king. And uh, Jesus, of course, doesn't deny that he's a king. He says, well, these are your words. Uh, but he says, my kingdom is not from this world. If it were, my followers would have fought to prevent my arrest. And what Jesus was saying to Pilate was, the source, the origin of my kingdom, of my rule and authority is not like yours. It doesn't come, the authority of my kingdom is not the result of conquest like the Romans. The establishment of my kingdom is not the result of the great eagle and its banner and its mighty armies uh, uh, making their way across a quarter of the globe. My kingdom is of a different source. It's the kingdom of God. Its power and authority is from heaven itself. So Jesus wasn't saying to Peter, don't defend yourself ever. What he was saying is in that situation, no, don't stand in the way of what God, the the way that God's kingdom is going to grow is not like the the Islamic empire grew or the Roman empire grew or the the empire of the Mongols grew. The, The kingdom of God grows through the proclamation of the gospel and the discipleship of nations in terms of the law word of God. That's how the kingdom of God grows and expands, but not by um, the, the sword. So Jesus wasn't denying the right of self-defense. And um, uh, in fact, the, the apostle Paul, uh, very interestingly as well, who, um, and maybe this is a sidebar, but he actually supports capital punishment in Acts 25, 11, when he says, if I've done anything deserving of death, I do not refuse to die. He accepted the punishments meted out in God's law, and he was ready to accept it himself. But in Acts 23, John, verses 11 through 31, um, Paul accepts a uh, a Roman guard. There is a plot in uh, Acts 23 to kill the apostle Paul. And um, the, the, the plot is discovered, and um, Paul tells one of his... Um, uh, compatriots to inform the the Roman uh, officers, the Roman guards, and um, the commander summons in in Acts twenty three. He summoned two of his centurions and said, "Get two hundred soldiers ready, with seventy cavalry and two hundred spearmen. Go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Also provide mounts so that they can put Paul on them and bring him to safety to Felix the governor." And it was Paul's idea to get the Romans involved and get military protection for his safe passage to the next city. And there are other instances like that. We could talk about uh, some of the others if we had a chance. Um, But there's no evidence at all that uh, Jesus was a pacifist or that the disciples, the apostles were pacifist in this sense. That's interesting. Um, And what about in terms of uh, the way they should honor the king, honor the emperor, etc. I mean, we know that they were experiencing a, a mass amount of persecution at the time. Yeah. They're being killed for their faith. 
but they were still being told to honor the emperor. Mm. So what do you think that that means? Well, scripture says that we're to give honor to whom honor is due. And um, I think what we have to do is look at the, uh, and this is where the principle I've talked uh, about before, I think on your show about sphere sovereignty um, is is so important. Uh, maybe we can come back to that in a moment. But um, the, the, the scriptures require us to give honor to whom honor is due. That is due respect, due honor. And um, so we're called to pray for those who are in authority. Uh, we are called to uh, respect those who who are in authority, um, and uh, to the to the offices that God has established in the earth. So God has established various kinds of authority in the earth. Uh, we can talk about three basic kinds of authority for simplicity's sake. We can talk about the authority of the family, and we are to honor. We're told our parents. In fact, that's taken so seriously by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians. That he says he reminds uh, the the church in Ephesus. He says, he, and therefore he reminds us all that um, honor towards our our parents is the first commandment that comes with a promise. Um, so he is citing the Decalogue, of course. He's citing the law of God. He says that so honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and that you live long in the in the earth. So he changes the the application there from the land to the earth. So we're required to honor our parents. Now, if you are in, in a family that's thoroughly abusive, uh, that is um, uh, acting immorally, disobeying God's law, and so on and so forth, what does it mean to honor your parents in that situation? Even as a young person, even if you're a teenager, well, of course, it means that um, you still have to obey God's law with respect to your parents. They are still your parents, even if they're bad parents. And so we must give them the respect that they're due. But we would not obey our parents. Honoring our parents doesn't mean obedience to our parents in doing things that are dishonoring to the Lord or evil or wicked. Let's take the other area of authority, another sphere of authority, the church. We are told very explicitly in Scripture that we are that those who labor in the word of God, in other words, the teaching elders in the life of the church, are worthy of double honor. And that would imply uh, not just financial remuneration, but respect, due respect. We're supposed to... Uh, Paul says, make their task easy. We're to, we're to honor those God has placed in authority in the church. But what if you're in a church where there's apostasy, where the elders are in rebellion against God's word and his law, where there's spiritual abuse, where there's other kinds of abuse? What does it mean to honor? The, well, it means in that situation, again, that we are to honor the leaders in the church that are honoring the Lord, that they're honoring God, but where they're dishonoring God, we can't simply submit and say, well, the Bible says submit to your leaders uh, as though that is an unqualified commandment. So whenever you're dealing with human authority, the only time where, uh, John, where commandments to obedience are not qualified in human experience is when it's about obedience to God. Whenever we're dealing with obedience, submission, honor to human authorities because of the problem of sin, honor and obedience is always qualified. And it's qualified in terms of the posture and behavior of these people towards God and his law. We can, we're never required in a, in, a, in a situation to obey that which is uh, in violation of what God wants for us, of what God is commanding with respect to us. And, and this applies, and I mentioned it earlier, this applies when uh, the state comes along and says to the church, you will not preach the gospel, you will not baptize, you will not 
uh, administer the sacraments. You will not pray for the sick. You will not ordain elders and by laying hands on them. You will cease your worship indefinitely and arbitrarily. The state is going to tell you what you will because you are a lesser part of the state. So the principle involved here is the principle of sphere sovereignty. The God has established various various areas of life that have a delimited area, jurisdiction and authority. And authority in the biblical view is always subject to God. So God is concerned not so much protecting the people who are in authority, He's concerned with protecting the offices, that the offices that God has established, the spheres of authority, so the office of being a father, parents, the office of being uh, elders or leaders in the church, the office of being prime minister or president or a civil magistrate. It's these, all authority, Scripture says, comes from God. Paul says that in Romans 13. So the order, the office, the structures of authority have come from God. But he doesn't say, I've sent you Adolf Hitler and Stalin and you must submit to them because all authority is from God. No, he's saying that civil government, civil authority is established and ordained of God and they have a particular office and that office is a trust from God and involves a task. What's the task? To punish evil and reward righteousness, to be God's deacon. If they fail to do that, it's not a blanket command to obey every whim of Joe Biden. Um, uh, because Joe Biden says so. No, the office of uh, government, of civil authority that Joe Biden occupies is to be honored and respected. But if he abuses that, violates the law of God, then we have a duty to disobey and to resist. And that's true of every order of human authority, every sphere of authority, because A, it's under God, and B, it's delimited by the other spheres of authority that God has established. So you mentioned the question of education, for example. You said state education. Why, if the state says, send your kids to the state school, we should do it. Yes, but God says, raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That's your first obligation. So if you're going to hand your kids over to the pagan state to be educated, uh, and you and, and as uh, as Doug Wilson has often said, if you send your uh, kids to Rome to be educated, uh, sorry, to, to pagans to be educated, don't don't be surprised if they come back as Romans, uh, not as Christians. Um, we have our first obligation to raise our children in the fear, instruction, and admonition of the Lord and in the word of God. And if the state is moving against that, then absolutely we don't submit to a state education. So this is to do with the fact that most, many Christians, in fact most, do not have a worked out Christian world and life view when it comes to their the relationship of these different orders of life, these different spheres of life, jurisdictions that God has established. It's the office, it's the order, it's the structure that God is concerned with. And if um, a Nero comes in or a Hitler comes in or a Stalin comes in, then we should be seeking the Lord and as quickly as possible seeking their removal because they are punishing the righteous and rewarding uh, evil. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I love that. You know, I think if people want to be recommended a fantastic resource to read about that, you need to get Joseph Boots' newest book called Ruler of Kings. Absolutely awesome. I always heard me talk about it. Uh, as you know, I loved your, your first book, if that was your first book, Mission of God. 
absolutely amazing. But the newest book, Ruler of Kings, is amazing. And it talks about sphere of sovereignty, sovereignty. in a great, mm -hmm. simple way. But let me ask you this. In the New Testament, <clears throat> we're told to live quiet lives, right? That sort of thing. Yeah. And I hear people saying, okay, Joe, I hear what you're saying about sphere of sovereignty, about the idea of the government's power being limited. And I hear you. But when we Christians make a stink about all this stuff, you know, like when John MacArthur came out a few years ago and mm -hmm. said, we need to open up our church. It was in California, if you remember, the government was allowing you to go to strip clubs, abortion clinics, uh, liquor stores, but not the et cetera, but not the church, right? Yeah. John MacArthur came out and said, no, we're opening up. Well, I remember an article coming out on uh, Nine Marks, I believe it was, which is kind of a, another think tank, sort of like a gospel coalition. I think it was maybe Jonathan Merritt. But this article came out and said, hey, not so fast. Before you opened your church, like John MacArthur said, no, no, not so fast. We're supposed to live quiet lives. You know, we're not supposed to be disrupting everything. Do you think that there's a difference between like Tim Keller's up is down, the way to rule is serve thing? Is there a difference? between being a Christian in a culture that is not Christian at all and mm -hmm. living in a culture that is sort of like a Christian civilization, mm -hmm. like America, something that has been built on values that we would say was distinctly Christian, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Judeo-Christian ethics and law and individual liberties and, and this sort of thing. So sort of like that Nye Marks article was saying, you know, he's saying, John, John MacArthur, all you're doing is bragging about your individual liberties, mm -hmm. bragging about I have the right to do this and this. It's almost like you're boasting, you know, they almost made it sound like you're boasting about this. But that's just that's John Locke stuff. That's not the way of Christ. All right. So, so keep going back to that. Uh, quiet lives. Let people come into our house and steal from us because our lives don't you know, belong to us. Let them beat you up for the sake of the gospel. So is there a difference between living in, in that civilization and living in a civilization that is built on Christian principles and, and, and law? Well, first of all, let's be reminded that uh, Jesus Christ himself said, uh, and often people, for some reason, when it comes to the gospel, um, remain at the cross. But Jesus isn't on the cross today. Um, and, and, and you, John, and I cannot vicariously suffer for anybody. So Christ alone is the sin bearer. So me saying I'm going to be incredibly pious and I'm going to let these uh, Nazis into the house and if they ask where the Jews are, I'm going to show them. And I've had people say that to me and I couldn't possibly lie. Um, or, you know, if, if somebody is going to want needs to or, or, or wants to uh, come in and um, rob my house or rape my wife, then I'm going to stand there because it's wrong to resist. This, this is utopian, pietistic, pacifistic nonsense. And I would go as far as to say it's evil. J Jesus Christ d is not today uh, hanging on the cross. He is raised to life. He is uh, ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of all power and authority. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ who, prior to his ascension, said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Therefore, go and disciple, discipline, teach nations, 
teach nations uh, to obey me. So fundamentally, at the foundation of everything, we need to be reminded of the total and absolute authority over the Lord, of the Lord Jesus Christ over all things. Revelation 1.5, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And he is the one who is now in history ruling over the nations, Psalm 2, breaking them, shattering them in pieces like a potter's vessel, scoffing at the wicked. Remember, Scripture says that God is a warrior. It actually says so very explicitly in Exodus uh, 15.3, that God is a man of war. The whole of the story of the gospel, the whole of the conflagration of the kingdom of God is described in militaristic terms. It's a holy conflagration. It's a battle. It's a struggle. Um, and so that's the context in which the Christian lives. Whatever period of history they're in, whatever kind of culture they're living in, we are living in the context of a battle, of a struggle, of, of, a, of a conflagration over, the, over which every square inch of the universe is contested by Jesus and his total authority and Satan and the children of disobedience. So, the, uh, which, which is how those who are in a rebellion against Christ are described. They are the sons and daughters of disobedience. And we contest with them, John, every square inch of the cosmos for the Lord Jesus Christ. Only what we've been told biblically is that Christ has won. He has defeated Satan uh, and he, uh, you know, the image of we're, we're running them to the river now, right? The, 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 the battle of the two towers has been won by the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are now chasing the enemy to the river in history. That's what we're doing. It's a mop-up campaign. That's the image we get in Scripture. Now, the practically, of course, pra in, in, the, in the practical living of the Christian life, you're asking a great question, which is, if I'm living in Saudi Arabia in an Islamic culture, and I'm live, or I'm living in uh, Tennessee, in the United States. My context is different. Now Jesus is still Lord and King over Saudi Arabia, and He's Lord and King over the United States and Tennessee. But the immediate context for Christian living, the practicalities of Christian living, are obviously impacted, right? Unless I, um, you know, fool for Jesus, idiot for Jesus is still being an idiot. And if in Saudi Arabia you're gonna you're gonna lose your life if you um, start doing open air gospel preaching and 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 displaying the cross uh, is gonna get you imprisoned or executed, it may be a good idea to do your evangelism differently. Now you mentioned the scripture, you know, uh, where uh, I think the apostle Peter uh, tells us to um, pray for those in authority, um, to intercede for kings, for all those in authority, so that we we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, dignified in every way. And it may not be verbatim, but that's pretty close to that text you're, you're, you're citing there. And um, I want you to think about two things about that text. First of all, if you and I are to intercede on behalf of kings, who has the greater authority? You see, if, if the king of kings and the lord of lords, if I am interceding for uh, human authorities, kings even, to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and I'm in a mediatorial role, I have the more senior position in God's economy. I'm mediating before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords for human government. And what's the purpose of that mediation, Peter says, is so that you and I can be left alone and the Christian church can be left alone. God's people will be left in peace 
to do the work of the kingdom of God, that the state will leave us alone, not impose its injections, not impose its state education, not impose its socialized medicine, not impose all of its ideological utopian agenda, but that we will be left in peace to pursue the work of the kingdom of God. And so we intercede on behalf of kings. That's not a commission to some sort of quietist, go and live in a monastery up on a mountain somewhere and sit on a spike and be really holy. That's not what that text is saying. It's saying that our task is to uh, expand the kingdom of God by honoring those to whom it's due and being an intercessor, as because we are prophets, priests, and kings in Christ, so that the Christian uh, people, God's people, can get on with the work of the kingdom of God and discipling nations. The beauty of living in Tennessee and not in Saudi Arabia right now, is that in Tennessee, for the most part, you are not hindered in your prayers, in your preaching, in your evangelization, in your Christian education, in your uh, um, uh, activity within culture and in the sciences and in politics to advance a Christian world and life view. You very much are hindered in those things in Saudi Arabia. Now, the early church was in a context, as you said, of persecution. And because they were, and because they stood by their ground, stood their ground in terms of the lordship of Christ, it cost them their life. So yes, we should prepare ourselves for suffering if we are going to stand our ground in terms of the kingdom of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ in an apostate culture. We need to prepare to be ostracized, marginalized, potentially use, lose our job. And as we've seen in Canada in recent years, even be imprisoned and suffer for the gospel, um, if we stand our ground. But of course, if we don't stand our ground, if we say, well, these things actually, you know, culture, the state, law, politics, these things and so on, all we do is acquiesce. We just submit. No, we, we just give in. Uh, we don't assert the claims of Jesus Christ over any of those areas of life because that wouldn't leave us in peace. We'd be, and, and we'd be troublemakers. Well, that's exactly what they were, John, in Acts 17. If you read the first uh, a segment, the first half of Acts chapter 17, do you know what the accusation is of the disciples as they've come to that area? They're turning the world upside down. These men, they said, who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And this man, Jason, has received them into his house. M many Christians' faith today couldn't pull them out of bed, never, never mind turn the world upside down. And what they meant by turning the world upside down is made explicit in Acts 17, John. It says, here was, the, here was the charge. Here was the charge. They are proclaiming another king. They are saying that there is another king. They are disobeying the decrees of Caesar. That was the charge. They're in violation of the decrees of Caesar because they're saying there is another king, Jesus. And the charge was true. And the result, John, is uproar. There's a mob. There's violence. There's all kinds of things going on. Why? Not because they're, they're preaching a Francis of Assisi Jesus who won't bother you, who won't disturb your peaceful, quiet life, who will just acquiesce and go along with sin and immorality and the world and rebellion. No, it's because they were preaching that there is another king superior to Caesar. His name is Jesus Christ. And he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. Now, if we live by that gospel in any context, then we are going to uh, face challenges. If we're in a Christianized context, of course, and we're saying that Jesus Christ has purchased me with his own blood, I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, I am a free man in Jesus Christ. Don't forget, Peter says, live as people who are free. 
not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Don't say, well, I'm a free man in Christ, therefore I can do evil things, nobody can touch me. No, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as, a, as someone who is free. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. If the Son sets you free, you really will be free to be an image bearer of God, to be an office bearer, to be a prophet, priest, and king under and in the Lord Jesus Christ. That means prophet speaking the word of God as a prophet, interceding on behalf of all people, including kings. That's being a priest. Being a king means to rule and subdue, obeying the cultural mandate, discipling nations. That's what it means to be a free man or woman. It's not invented by John Locke. John Locke actually wasn't fully theologically orthodox. He didn't properly recognize the true condition of man as a fallen, ruined sinner. He didn't have a truly orthodox understanding of the doctrine of man. Um, but because he got it part right, he helped. But he didn't invent any of those things about freedom, our, our freedom to speak, our freedom to pray, our freedom to live. Those are given to us in Scripture and in the gospel by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it, and that's why the church in the history of the world was the first truly free institution. In the ancient world, to be a human, to, to be a, a citizen meant you were a true person. You had recognition. If you had no citizenship, if you had no polis, you didn't belong. You were a slave. You had no rights. You had no rights. Remember, they were about to beat the apostle Paul. He was about to be flogged. They were tying him up, ready to flog him. And he said, is it lawful for you to flog a Roman citizen? And when they heard he was a Roman citizen, the, 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 the officer came to him and he said, um, my citizenship cost me a lot of money. Paul said, I was born a Roman citizen. The Bible says then he was terrified and he led them out. And he wouldn't, and Paul wouldn't let them lead them out in secret. He said, No, you're not going to do that. You're going to lead us out publicly. I'm a Roman citizen. If you didn't have that status, you could just be flogged without charge. You could be treated as chattel. It's the law of God, it's the gospel of God and the gospel of the kingdom that gives us that dignity, that freedom. And that's why it birthed the first truly free institution, the church, which said, No, we're not under the state. We enjoy our own sphere of sovereignty under the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, Caesar and the state is under Christ. So is the church. So am I. And if you are in line with the Lord Jesus Christ and his word, I'll give due submission and honor because that's the office God has established. If you're in utter rebellion against God, if Sharia law says something, and I'm in an Islamic country, but it's in violation of God's law, I'm not going to do it. If, if a Hindu law says something, uh, and I'm living in India, uh, but it violates the law of God, I'm not going to do it. And so the privilege and the blessing that we are squandering in the United States and in Britain and in Canada is that we have inherited through the common law tradition this law, the law of God, and the, and the word of God uh, as, as basic to our legal structure, as basic to the law, the common law. It started in the first codification of English law with Alfred the Great, back in the ninth century, and it's come down to us, and it grants us these liberties and freedoms. The more statist we've become, the more we've surrendered the Lordship of Christ, the more we're saying, well, we just have to acquiesce to give in. We just have to passively surrender to everything the state says. No, we surrender to Christ. That's where our allegiances do. That's super good, Joe. And listen, I know we're at the end. I know we got to get going here, but... You know, I love what you said. I think you're right. When I look at these think pieces from Christian scholars uh, in America, UK, um, in some Canada, wherever, I get the sense that they are writing to me 
And they think that I must be living in Saudi Arabia like, you know, almost like they've forgotten where we live. Yeah. And they've forgotten the, the incredible blessing that we have. And we're, we're squandering this incredible blessing of the civilization we live in that was largely based on biblical law, biblical morality. And we have food. In fact, we're feeding nations all over the world. That's right. We have incredible medical advances um, that have increased people's uh, life expectancies, health quality of life. And now as we're going away from the Bible, we're seeing this amazing increase in murders, violence, teen suicide is soaring. I sometimes get the feeling, and I'm curious if you, I don't know, this is my opinion anyway. I sometimes get the feeling that these Christian writers, uh, almost like they think that it's mean to suggest that God's law would be good for people to, to live by. Almost like Jesus is good for people when they die, but to expect Jesus for people that like on earth, well, that's just oppressive and mean. Yeah. It's almost like, almost like in slavery. It's, it's oppressing them because, because God's law is, is, is terrible for people when they're on earth. I think they just sort of have vision for like Christian civilization is Christian civilization even possible or would it even be good? I think they don't even actually really want that. Well, that's where you've hit the nail absolutely on the head. That, that's, a, that's a very, very accurate intuition. Let's remember that God, God himself, with respect to um, Israel, required, and this is where we get our idea in the West of the rule of law, um, not only is the king to be subject to that law, because the kings of Israel were required to read the law of God every day so that they weren't lifted up above their brothers, Scripture says, but it was to be the same law for the resident and for the alien. So if you wanted to live in Israel, uh, there was one law for, even if you were a pagan idolater, you didn't have to get circumcised, you didn't have to become a covenant member, you didn't have to go and uh, perform the sacrifices, you could be at peace to live your way, but you had to obey the law of God uh, uh, with respect to these, uh, as we talked about, the external realities, right? Nobody can be forced to worship the Lord Jesus internally. Uh, nobody can be uh, forced to be righteous, but that's not the function of the law. The Apostle Paul makes very clear the function of God's law that, as you've rightly said, many Christians today think is mean and nasty, but the Apostle Paul in First uh, Timothy chapter 1, talking about the external relationships of the law and its civil application, he tells us who the law was made for. He says it's for the murderers and those that kill fathers and mothers and um, the sexually perverse and so on. And he makes crystal clear, in fact, I should uh, just, so that I don't inaccurately quote it, let me just quote it to you very quickly. First Timothy chapter one, he says, we know that the law is good provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the, sex for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching. And listen to this, John verse 11, based on the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. So he says, this is in accordance with the gospel. God's law is actually good for everybody. 
you know, G.K. Chesterton, I think, once said, if you don't live by the Ten Commandments, you'll live by the Ten Thousand Commandments. And the, the, because the law is liberating, right? It doesn't say, um, or it, it doesn't give you a, 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 a abstract, vague commandments that are un, that, 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 that simply cannot be kept. There's a very limited number. They're usually framed in the negative. And everything else is freedom. And, and this is why uh, nations, as you've described them, that have rested heavily on the foundation of biblical law have been free nations. We talk about the free world. They've been free nations because they've been grounded in these principles that God's law of love, the Bible calls it God's law of love. It's God's law of liberty, James says, the law of liberty. And that um, it tells us, fundamentally, Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. And Paul in Romans 13 says, love, after citing various elements of the Decalogue of God's law, he says, love is the fulfillment of the law. So if we're going to love our neighbor, then we need to obey God's law with respect to him. Well, imagine a community, a society where people love God and love their neighbor, where people didn't steal and kill and kidnap and rape and covet and so on and honored their parents. What kind, how is that a, a, um, a form of slavery or mean? That Because then people will flourish and families will flourish and the economy will flourish and people will walk in the blessing of Deuteronomy 28. Um, righteousness exalts a nation, the scripture says, but sin is a reproach to any people. And it's and, and the proverb says, by me, the word of God, God says, by me, kings reign. By me, they execute justice. So this is what this is how God blesses the nations. It's how he blesses neighborhoods. It's how he blesses families and peoples. Through the gospel and obedience to his law is the path of life, the way of peace. And that's why Jesus upheld it and expounded it on the Sermon on the Mount. So your, your instinct is absolutely right. There's a sense that we don't want Christian civilization. God's law is mean to expect anybody to want to obey uh, or to want a society in which God's law was obeyed is mean and nasty. And yet that's the very society that they're living off the cultural inheritance of. The very freedoms of speech and of economic life and, and a, a fair trial in the courts and one law for all and uh, kings and governors and presidents and prime ministers being subject to law. That's all the inheritance of the very things they say they don't want. I think, I think that's right. <laughs> it's a little bit like the, uh, the college student, you know, his, his parents are paying $200,000 for him to go to college. And, and, and that's where he learned how to hate his parents. <laughs> you know, they taught him like, like a good Marxist should, he learned to hate his parents who were footing the $200,000 bill <laughs> that they had to pay for to go to college anyway. I think that's right, um, Joseph. It's been great having you. And I just got to give one last recommendation. You guys, you have to go get Joe's new book, all right? It is called Ruler of Kings. It's shorter. It's only about 250 pages, I believe. So it's a lot more condensed than Mission of God. It is awesome. In my view, the most important book of the year. So go check that out. You can get it on Amazon, but where else can they get it? Yeah, they can visit our own website, EzraInstitute.com. Um, and uh, uh, you can get the books on Amazon, but it helps us more if you, if you buy them from us. And um, you can uh, uh, listen to our podcast, wherever you get your podcast. We have the podcast for Cultural Reformation, where we deal with these kind of subjects every week. Um, and uh, we'd love to connect with people. Thank you so much, John. 
I appreciate it. Everybody have an awesome week.